0: I'm Kristen Hammond.
1: And I'm Andrew McDaniel.
0: Welcome to our first bonus episode.
1: Hopefully you listened to our episode one about Madame Tussaud, and that one's effigies and wax is the name of that one. So there was so much content that we thought it was perfect to put together a bonus episode for y'all.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I mean this one I really just couldn't stop myself from going down the rabbit hole. There was so much there. You know, this time in the 1800s, it was just grim. There was a lot of crime. And in looking at it, a lot of it seems like it was very financially motivated. It was what I researched wasn't a lot of crime of passion. It was a lot of money-related crimes. And so my my research was focused around people who had a death mask made by Madame Tussaud or her sons, And kind of looking into their crimes and and what they had been executed for. So, you ready to jump in? Yeah. Okay. So, now we're going to get into some really gnarly criminals. The first one that we're going to start off with is a dude named Charles Peace. Now, I mean, it sounds like a nice kind of hippie name, Charles Peace. I mean, can't you just picture some, like, modern hippie? Um, But, no, this guy was like just a bad dude everything I read about talked about him turning to a life of crime after being permanently disabled in an accident as a child but I feel like this is very ableist you know to suggest that someone's character turns into this kind of creature uh, because of an accident so I just want to preface it by saying we are not ableist and I do not support the storyline but this is how his story is framed Everything was fine in Charles Peace's life until he was permanently disabled in an accident as a child. He had a very uh, bad accident. He had trouble walking. He was, you know, just lots of health issues. But in spite of that, he was like mad successful as a burglar all across Northern England. Dude was just prolific is the word, just hundreds and hundreds all over the place. But one night, as he was escaping from a burglary in Manchester, he killed a police officer. Uh, the police officer kind of said, stop, and he just whipped out his gun and shot him, which, you know, is kind of shocking for this time that a burglar's running around with a gun. But he was able to escape, and he returned to his hometown of Sheffield, and it was around this time that he became obsessed with the wife of an acquaintance, some kind of work contact of some kind, And he started stalking them. Um, You know, he knew them socially, but then it it got twisted and he stalked them. And ultimately, he murdered the husband, just shot him outside of his house as he was telling him to stay away from his wife. So, I mean, kind of a very modern kind of storyline. But again, he escaped and he made his way to the London suburbs. And I think, you know, he really thought he could disappear into London. And in the 1800s, that was actually possible, you know. So he was just returned to a life of petty crime and burglary. He just kept on keeping on. And finally, he was caught during a home invasion, kind of a anticlimactic end. And he was returned to Sheffield and Manchester to stand trial for the murders. And he was convicted and hanged.
1: I mean, Peace is not an apt last name for this no, man. not at all. And it's almost unfortunate, in a way, you'll see by some of my research, like... In some ways, it's almost like I hate that this guy has influenced culture so much. hmm Because he's just a fucking loser. <laughs> Sorry. Don't R.I.P. whatever. Like, you're a bad person. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so you'll see what I'm talking about. There's a bit in here that and in some ways almost seems celebratory, which I hate. So, like I said, he's found his way into pop culture over the last hundred years. In 1927, the play The Life and Adventures of Charles Peace came out, um, and it starred a man named John Ellis as the executioner, and this was extremely macabre casting because Ellis was a British executioner for 23 years in real life. Um, So, stunt casting. It caused a bunch of controversy at the time, but I guess no press is bad press? (laughs) Um, So yeah, for... The executioner, they cast a real-life executioner. But something that I found really fascinating, so I took a lot of film classes in college, but unexpected, or not surprisingly, I didn't learn anything about the history of British (laughs) cinema, but I found this part interesting. So there was a 1905 movie, The Life of Charles Peace. Um, It's the earliest existing example of the British one-real story film, and from what I was reading, it's like parallel in importance to the American, the Great Train Robbery, mm. um, which I learned a lot about in school. Like, there's a very foundational piece of cinema history for America, and I've never heard of the life of Charles Peace. But uh, apparently it's that contemporary for England, and it's also the first British film to ever show murder.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: So we're talking 1905, silent movie. Um, so I watched it. I watched it on YouTube. And it really is impressive for the time. Like, it must have been mind-blowing in 1905 to watch. And so another piece, so just in school, I took a class where I had to film on Super 8 cameras. So, like, from, I guess, the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um And setting, even with digital light meters, setting the lighting to be captured on the film was so hard. So that's where, like, my headspace was watching this from 1905, where it's like, how? Right. How did they figure this out? Like, a mess up would have been impossible to fix. But anyway, um, so I have a super respect for the film itself. And in, in that way, Charles Peace's story helped launch the entire British film industry,
0: That's amazing. So, I mean, I I just want to point out here that for our listeners, we're really providing them with some serious cocktail party banter when things open up again and they can get out. I mean, this is good stuff here. Like, early British cinema. Where else are you going to get this? I I just had to say that.
1: Yeah, for the one time I ever find myself on Jeopardy!, I am ready. (laughs) (laughs) But, so there was another film in 1949, and then weirdly enough um charles peace has a cameo in the beatles film a hard day's night
0: Whoa, more it, Beatles it, stuff here it's
1: just yeah it's like full circle with the madame tussaud's conversation yeah but yeah it, it like ringo gets arrested in the movie and they talk about like the ghost of charles peace Ugh. and then i have watched that movie but i did not re-watch i was like well A one-sentence cameo I don't need to (laughs) jump into. (laughs) Um, But, so even before movies, Charles Peace was all over literature, too. In the 1800s, there was, like, an anonymous story, and the title's really weird. It was, like, Charles, semicolon, peace, comma, or The Adventures of a Notorious Burglar. (laughs) But it was an anonymous, it's just... Back from the 1880s, there's like it survived, but mm-hmm. nobody knows who wrote it. But in 1931, Edgar Wallace's The Devil Man is released and it features fictionalized account of Peace's later career with some accurate details of his trial and execution. Peace is mentioned in the Sherlock Holmes short story, The Adventure of the Illustrious Client, mm. and also in Mark Twain's Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. Wow. And then The Astounding Adventures of Charlie Peace uh, is a serialized UK comic and buster from the 60s and 70s. And in 2005, Peace was featured in a comic series, Albion. Wow. (laughs) And most recently, the story was memorialized again in 2018 in the song called Charles Peace by Leeds pop group Steve Woods and the Hoods. Hmm. which I listened to, and that's going to be in our Spotify playlist.
0: Yes, yes, awesome. So, but I yeah. mean, is it like he became a kind of a folk hero or something?
1: It seems as though, like, the more positive type of things focused on the, like, cat burglar aspect yeah. and didn't get into that he was a disgusting, misogynist stalker, murderer. But I guess it... it he was just became a larger than life burglar, and that's where a lot of the story hit. It's so
0: fascinating.
1: That's what I meant, where I was like, it's kind of disgusting in a way that, because yeah. that feels a little too celebratory for what like a piece of crap he was.
0: Definitely, definitely. Ugh.
1: But wild. I mean, I had no clue before going into the research that his story that I'd never even heard of would be so influential in major pieces of cultural history,
0: yeah. And I wonder if that's just a British-American thing that, you know, he's more well-known there, and, and we neither of us had heard of it before this, just, you know, because we're Americans and it's less known here. But
1: the next one, yes. I definitely have heard.
0: The next one is super infamous, and I, I think a lot of our listeners will have some familiarity with it.
1: Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at Most Foul Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. So we're talking now about William Burke and William Hare. They were two Irish tradesmen uh, who were living in Edinburgh in the early 1800s, and they, they just both happened to be Irish. One was actually from Northern Ireland, and one was from Ireland, Republic of Ireland. And they had come over separately and just kind of happened, happened to run in the same circles in Edinburgh. Hare and his wife, Margaret, took lodgers into their home for extra money. And this included Burke, who he had met through work, like I said, and his common-law wife, Helen Nelly, as she was known, McDougal. In late 1827, one of the Hare's lodgers fell ill and died. Okay, so kind of like normal situation. It's the 1800s. Vaccines don't exist, I guess. And, you know, in general, medical care is crap. So one of the lodgers died suddenly. You know, Hare was really worried about the four pounds of back rent that the lodger still owed. And I guess he was getting some money or some welfare or something, but the check hadn't come in, and so he's just his mind is immediately going to like his finances. Heron Burke, who you know were buddies at this point, decided that they were going to sell the guy's corpse to a surgeon at the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, I want to give a little background here. There was a dire need for cadavers. Um, you know, the medical field and medical research was just exploding at this time. There was this College of Surgeons in Edinburgh. And they needed, they needed cadavers for training and research. But there were laws at the time in Scotland that restricted where you could get cadavers to deaths by suicide, deaths in prison, or orphans. Which, I mean, I feel like that sentence just kind of says everything that we need to know about the 19th century in a nutshell. When they did that, Harenberg received almost eight pounds for the corpse, which... At the time, was about eight week salary for Burke, who I don't know was doing kind of odd jobs and and different things. The equivalent today would be about eight hundred and seventy five pounds or twelve hundred dollars in in U.S. currency. So you know, not a fortune, but definitely not nothing. The money proved so good, and I mean to be honest, just so easy that over the next twelve months, the pair and This is disputed, but everyone really believes that they had the knowledge and sometimes the help of their wives. They killed 16 known victims. A lot of them were lodgers in Hare's home, but they think that there were a lot more than 16. And some of them were, you know, not people who lived on the street, but just people who lived in the neighborhood, basically, who they would lure into Hare's home With offers of whiskey, just like, hey, you want to come over for a drink? Or, hey, I'll give you whiskey, come over. And, you know, whatever their, like, come on was. And people would do it, and then, you know, that was it. They had, I guess, a really good way of killing people, if you want to put it that way. But what they would do is they would get them drunk, and then when their defenses were down, one of them would sit on their chest, and the other one would pinch their nostrils, And so there was no, like, physical sign of what had killed them. So when they go to this college of surgeons and they're basically selling these bodies, it was plausible that, you know, they had died of natural causes. There was no trauma to the body. There was no whatever. So they did this a lot of times, 16, probably more. They were finally caught, and this is the part that just really gives me the heebie-jeebies. They were finally caught because two other lodgers became suspicious. They were they had someone over and then the person wasn't there and they were just acting weird, basically. And the so the lodgers decided to snoop around the house when uh, Burke and Hare were out doing whatever. And they stumbled across one of their victims, packed in straw, like at the end of the bed in one of the bedrooms, ready to be taken to the college to be sold. Now... To me this is like every horror movie you've ever seen, right? Like you you get this sneaking suspicion and instead of just like fleeing, you decide you're going to search around the house and then you find a corpse. I mean, I, I I think maybe this is the prototype for where horror movies got, like, right? The discover a corpse and run away trope. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is nightmare fuel. They get caught. I mean, it's not a movie. So the people they the people got out of the house alive and, and actually they ran into one of the wives on their way to the police and the wife tried to bribe them into not going to the police. And I don't know what she was going to bribe them with, but yeah. So they were caught. Hare was given immunity to testify against Burke um, and McDougal, his common law wife. And in 1828, Burke was convicted of one of the 16 murders. You know, it's, it's not so different from today where, you know they have one that has especially compelling evidence, and that's the one that they take to trial. So he was sentenced to death, and he got the hanging, dissection, tanned hide, book bound treatment, and his skeleton Another
1: dissection he, and yes, book
0: bound, book bound, and his skeleton was turned into a training thing. Only with this one, his skeleton still hangs in the anatomical museum of the University of Edinburgh Medical School to this day nightmare right <laughs> so the charge against McDougal was declared not proven they didn't say she didn't do it or wasn't involved but they just couldn't prove it and she was released immediately after the trial to her home in edinburgh and of the of the group of them she was the only one who was born in scotland um so she went back to her home home in edinburgh and i don't know what runs through your mind when you're let off on a charge of murder that you were actually a part of and and is, like, so notorious in the area. But she went out later that week to get some whiskey, um, if you're sensing a theme here. (laughs) And she was attacked by an angry mob, and she had to run to the police station for protection. So they take her in, and then the police station is put under siege by this mob. I mean, it, it was a big deal. They killed a lot of people in this borough of of Edinburgh. She had to escape through a back window and she supposedly left Edinburgh the next day, but no one knows where she went or what became of her. So that's her Hare could not be forced to testify against his wife. Again, similar in the justice system today. What's that called? Spousal protection or
1: immunity. I think spousal spousal immunity. immunity.
0: Thank you. So, so she walked free because there wasn't really any evidence against her and there was no one testifying against her. They held on to her, again, by design for a little while, just for her own safety, but then they they released her, and she was on her way to Belfast via Glasgow, and she was recognized and attacked by a different mob, but police were able to kind of whisk her away from that and, and ship her off to Belfast, and nothing is known of her in the historical records after that, so that's her. And then finally, Hare. Hare was held for even longer because they knew that he needed protection, essentially. And I guess witness protection didn't exist at the time. But when they did let him go, they helped him make his way in disguise to Dumfries, a city in southwest of Scotland. But he was recognized um, in his disguise. And again, the mob came for him. He was put in a police station for his own safety, but the mob, again, began to riot and attack the station. So he snuck out with a decoy carriage, and a hundred special constables were called in to disperse the mob. So, I mean, it was it was nuts, right? The police escort then basically took him to the edge of town. So I, I looked this up, and they, they mentioned, like, the street where they took him, and I looked on Google Maps, and it's essentially the edge of town. They took him to the edge of Edinburgh and... Oh, no, I'm sorry, to the edge of Dumfries. And they were like, England's that way, bro. (laughs) 25 miles away. So he was basically left on his own to find his way to England, and he was never heard from again. So I think it's fair to assume that maybe he met the mob again. I mean, who knows? We don't know. But I like to imagine that he met a grim fate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how I feel about mob justice, but in this case... (laughs) Uh, I could get on board. Yes. Uh, So these folks, uh, also all over, media, art entertainment. The events of the murders have been in a a ton of things. So I have a very non-exhaustive list. But originally they were referenced by Robert Louis Stevenson's 1884 short story, The Body Snatcher, which itself was made into a 1945 film starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Three years later, the story made its way to Oswald Mitchell's horror film, Horror Maniacs. (laughs) Apt title. But the British censors decided it was too soon to use the names Burke and Hare, even though it was 120 years later. And so the names were changed and redubbed for the movie. Wow. So then again, in 1972, a movie Burke and Hare was released. The story was adapted on radio, also in 74 with the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. Edinburgh-based author Elizabeth Byrd wrote a novel, Rest Without Peace, and that was also 74. And then in 76, she wrote another novel called The Search for Maggie Hare. So she was a true crime enthusiast. And then in 1985... The Doctor and the Devil brings the story to life. So it's different character names, but the same event. Mm-hmm. And just a fun bit of trivia is that movie was produced by Mel Brooks. Random? Yeah. Apparently Mel Brooks had a production company. They also produced The Elephant Man. I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> um, so then fast forwarding to 2010 and the latest adaptation, Burke and Hare comes out starring uh, Simon Pegg and Andy Serkis and so
0: how have I not heard of that
1: oh well it was reviewed poorly oh okay that makes sense (laughs) but I felt the same way because I was like I never heard of this but their story I mean there's whole podcast just about this and it continues to be one of Britain's most notorious crimes in so much that it's often put on the same level as Jack the Ripper wow yeah it's like pop culture, media, it's not going to stop. There's going to be more about them um, yeah. for sure.
0: Well, it's so prolific. I mean, it's like as prolific as Charles Peace was in burglary, these guys were just prolific in killing people and selling their bodies.
1: This is dark, but so that $1,200 U.S. Dollars for the body, people would do that today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Which is why I wanted to do those translations because I wanted to see like, you know, how much was this then? Because I mean, eight pounds sounds like not a lot. And one of the weird little details that I found when I was doing this research is it was eight pounds in the summer and 10 pounds in the winter because in the winter the bodies lasted longer because it was colder. And so they got more use out of the cadaver. I mean, it's gross. It's gross.
1: I know everybody probably throughout history is like, I'm so happy to be alive now, but like, <laughs> I'm happy to be alive now.
0: <laughs> yeah, so anytime that you're sitting watching like an Ivory Merchant movie and you're thinking, wow, it would have been great to be alive then, those dresses, those whatever, I don't know, whatever people like about those things, just think about, yeah, Burke and Hare and how cheap life was. All right, you ready for the last one? Yeah. So finally, I I like this one because I feel like it turns it on its head. and, And you talked a little bit about executioners. Well, this last one, his name is William Marwood, and he was a 19th century British executioner. So his death mask was taken by, again, it was very hard to find details about who did the actual death masks, but... It was done by either Marie Tussaud or her sons. And we've got pictures of this in, the, in Instagram and um, on the post. But there was an exhibit at Madame Tussaud of William Marwood with one of his famous victims. Can we, can we call them that? One of his executionees. So William Marwood was the executioner of Charles Peace, the, the murderous cat burglar from the beginning of this episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Madame Tussaud, in her chamber of horrors, had a display that was Charles Peace with his executioner, and she did masks of both of them. Well, this guy, I mean, was a prince among men. He he developed the technique known as the long drop, which was a way of hanging people that was thought to be more humane because they died more quickly from a snap neck rather than suffocation, which is how it happened before that when they used the very creatively named short drop technique. But, I mean, this guy, like, he volunteered to be an executioner. He wasn't tapped by the king or, you know, he went to someone and said, like, you need an executioner, I am your man, and here's how I'm going to do it. So, I don't know. He was on the job for nine years, and he killed 176 people. That's, like... That's almost 20 a year or one every couple of weeks. Like, imagine that job.
1: I mean, I I don't know William Marwood, so I don't want to, like, suppose too much. And I'm not saying, so if you're, you know, his great, 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 whatever, don't come for me. Um, but what a perfect job if you were, like, a psychopath.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: it's like, hey... You got to kill people. I want to kill people. Well, let's get, a, let's get a deal here.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, that's the sense you get, right? Like, who volunteers for that job? Unless you have a thirst for killing.
1: It's a good idea. I mean, Google should hire psychopaths to be the people who uh, clear off all the horrible stuff from the Internet.
0: That's actually a really good idea. Oh, my gosh. That's a great idea.
1: We could but, do a whole podcast about yeah. how horrible Google is to its uh, third-party contractors that are tasked with this job and then are, like, wrecked for their life. So they should hire uh, psychopaths and killers.
0: I mean, I think this is an action item that we need to take away from this podcast to to get that idea to someone.
1: I'm going to call up uh, Chester Google. Be like, I've got <laughs> the idea for you.
0: It's no different, though, than, you know, the government hiring hackers to work on on cybersecurity. You know, it's the same kind of thing.
1: Yeah, this is I mean, there's so much more, too. I mean, so if you're interested in this uh, as the listeners, like, look it up, too. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, we have this idea about Madame Tussauds and the weird history. And like, look at the wealth of information we've covered just with
0: this. I know, I know there's so much out there it's fascinating
1: yeah and uh we know that this is exclusive content and so just a real thank you for supporting our patreon like we've said in the other episodes like you know we have full-time jobs we have full-time lives um and this is a passion project for us and so your support just really means so much
0: thank you so much we appreciate the hell out of you
1: Thanks for listening to Most Vowel. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode,
0: visit our website at mostvowelpod.com and write in.
1: This has been a Facts from
0: Janet production.